Welcome to this worship service at the Old Presbyterian Meeting House in Alexandria, Virginia. We hope you will join us some Sunday morning here in Old Town, Alexandria. Again, welcome. Before turning to our scripture readings for this Lord's Day, I wanted to say just two quick things. First, I want to thank you again for all the love and support that you continue to show to me and my family in these difficult days, and especially after last week's difficult sermon. As many of you noticed, it was difficult not only to write but to share, but it was made easier being surrounded with so much love. 
And secondly, as seems to be the case every time I'm away from the pulpit for a few weeks, that whoever put the lectionary together throws me a curveball. And it gives me a tough message to share with you and with all believers. And so today, as we dig into our text for a little bit, it is very appropriate, I think, that I remind you, I'm just a humble messenger, so please don't shoot me. First reading is from the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in the Lord's ways, and observing the Lord's commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him and holding fast to him. For that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Word of the Lord. And our second lesson from the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> you have heard it's that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First and be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And again, you've heard it said that those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven or by earth, for it is the throne of God. For it has his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. May God help us with these passages. Spoiler alert. Jesus preaches some of the most politically and theologically charged sermons you will ever hear. Here, the so-called Sermon on the Mount is a case in point. It begins with a radical assignment of blessings on the poor, the mournful, the meek, and those hungering for righteousness. It then admonishes listeners to adhere to even higher standards than the law of Moses. It's a sobering sermon to contemplate at any time, but especially now, given what has just happened across the river. And I'm referring to the National Prayer Breakfast. The keynote speaker was Arthur Brooks, the former head of the American Enterprise Institute, a leading conservative think tank. Given the setting, a prayer breakfast, and his own religious background, a conservative Catholic, Brooks turned to the Sermon on the Mount to urge his listeners to address what he called the crisis of contempt that is tearing our society apart. You will recognize the language. You have heard that it was said, but I say. Brooks focused on the call to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And I found Brooks's speech to be a very timely word from the Lord. And I encourage you to get a copy and read it if you've not done so already. What troubled me was our president's immediate response to Brooks. Given the setting, a prayer breakfast, and our president's declared religious background, a Presbyterian, he said he did not agree with Brooks, and then to prove his point, he shortly thereafter began getting rid of people that he deemed to be his enemies. And what troubled me even more was the way that most of the religious leaders in that room seemed to be okay with that. To be clear, it wasn't Brooks President Trump disagreed with, it was Jesus. It was Jesus and not Brooks who said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, scholars call this portion of Jesus' sermon the antitheses. Jesus points to certain laws and commandments and then says, but I say to you, 
And this pattern of speech not only dominates our gospel lesson for today, but as I've just pointed out, it extends well beyond it. Unless we be tempted to think otherwise, Jesus is not in any sense trying to do away with what we have heard that it was said about the law. To the contrary, he is trying to get us to dig deeper into the meaning of the law, to align our lives with that much more with the law's values, and to commit ourselves to its transformative power. As Wesley Seminary professor Carla Works points out, the antitheses are daunting. Refuse to harbor anger. Honor oaths, whether in marriage or to your neighbor. Desire justice so much that you would rather suffer a wrong than impose one on another. Love your enemies and pray to God on their behalf. These teachings indicate that Jesus' kingdom demands radical discipleship so that even a person's thought world is transformed by contact with God's reign. Well, as I said, Jesus is not trying to do away with the law. He's trying to get us to dig deeper into its meaning. When Jesus says, but I say to you, he's trying to get us to focus on the things that really matter, things that lead to life, not death. As you've just read and heard, the antitheses literally start with a matter of life and death. You have heard that it's, it was said, you shall not commit murder, a commandment that I suspect is not all that difficult for us to keep. But then Jesus says, it is just as bad to be angry with or to hold grudges against another person as it is to murder them. Jesus even goes so far as to say that when we find ourselves angry with another person, our first and only priority should be to reconcile with that person. A point that seems lost on our president and I fear on many of our nation's political and religious leaders as well. Jesus then goes on to say, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, divorce, or swear falsely. But I say to you, it is better to lose a part of your own body than to treat someone else as an object to be manipulated for your own pleasure. Here, as in the other antitheses, Jesus extends the law by having us internalize it so that not only our behaviors, but our attitudes and our emotions fall within its scope. As Amy Oden points out, Jesus connects the dots for his listeners, from outward acts to internal orientation, from murder to anger, from adultery to lust, and so on. Jesus offers a more radical ethic, a reign of ethic, one already hinted at in the list of Beatitudes. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the pure in heart, all of these are blessed, not because they are exemplars of the law, but because of the inward orientations of their hearts. The righteousness of this newly inaugurated kingdom of God requires and empowers a life surrendered to God and to neighbor. All of the antitheses 
are about choosing life. And choosing it not just for ourselves, but also for our neighbors, our friends, and yes, even our foes. According to Jesus, life is threatened when anger and judgment and insult are the order of the day. Life is threatened when people are objectified and when people fail to keep their promises. As Caroline Lewis puts it, if our interpretations of the law lead to death, the silencing of other voices, the discounting of other persons, the disrespect and demeaning of entire groups of people, the labeling aimed at putting others in their place, well, then we have to think long and hard about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what troubles me about our president and about many of our nation's political and religious leaders. This is what troubles me about many of us. This is what troubles me about the people who support their deadly agendas. For as Jesus makes clear here and elsewhere, to follow him is to choose life, not death. To build people up, not tear them down. To borrow again from Lewis, if choose life was the test case for what we did and said, we might pause before we lash out in anger and fear. We might just take a moment to pause before we label someone pro this or anti that. We might stop and think, is what I'm about to say or do something that would be recognizable as life-giving, life-upholding, life-empowering? I ran across a poem by Marilyn Macell entitled Clothesline. It speaks not only to the way things are, but to the way things might be if more of us took Jesus' sermon seriously. I, you, us, them, those people. Wouldn't it be lovely if one could live in a constant state of we? Some of the most commonplace words can be some of the biggest dividers. They. What if there was no they? What if there was only us? If words could be seen as they floated out of our mouths, would we feel no shame as they pass beyond our lips? If we were to string our words on a communal clothesline, would we feel proud as our thoughts flapped in the breeze? Dear friends, we live in a perilous time, a time when the state of we seems not only beyond our reach, but beyond our ability to imagine. We live in a time when anger, judgment, and insult are, in fact, the order of the day, a time when people are objectified and demeaned, often just for being different, a time when a person's word seems to mean little or nothing. We live in a time when people of faith seem more wedded to the ways of the world than to the ways of God. 
We live in a time when the needs of our neighbors take a back seat to selfish whims. We live in a time when there seems to be few people with the moral courage to say and do what's right in the eyes of God. We live in a time when those who do have that moral courage are labeled as losers. Well, Jesus looks at all of this and says, but I say to you, be reconciled, be loving, be forgiving, be merciful, be different because you are first and foremost citizens of God's kingdom. I believe today's lessons challenge us to do better, to be better. They challenge us to live and to love in a state of we. And so for me, the main takeaway is this. We need to demand more more from ourselves, our families, our neighbors, our colleagues, and yes, our political and religious leaders. And we need to do it now. And we need to do it together. Amen.